I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We have been, over the past few weeks, looking at overwhelmed by God, examining the truths that overwhelm us. But I want to remind us this morning that being engaged with these truths and experiencing these truths is more than just filling our minds with information. It is to change us. It is for us to experience who God is. If truth about God merely fills our minds but does not engage our hearts, then we have missed the point of truth about God. God reveals His truth about Himself to us so that we may know Him, not just know about Him. When the people that we have looked at have been overwhelmed by God, their lives were changed. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was overwhelmed by the glory of God, and Isaiah's life was changed. We think also perhaps of Moses. When he came off the mountain, he had been in the presence of the glory of God, and his face shone. And he came off the mountain, and the people of Israel said, Moses, you've got to cover your face up. We can't stand to look at you because you've got so much glory in your face. The psalmist in Psalm 107, when he encountered the goodness of God and he was overwhelmed with the goodness of God, it was expressed in a, in a form of worship and praise, a song that was to be sung in worship and praise to God. When the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 was overwhelmed with the greatness of God, the greatness of our Creator, the greatness of our Redeemer. He is overwhelmed. He falls on His face, and all of heaven falls on its face before God because you cannot encounter the truth. You cannot encounter the God of the universe and not be overwhelmed by it and not be changed by it. So if you walk out of here today with just a better understanding of how to define and understand grace then you've missed really the point of what God is saying and speaking to us this morning. But if you engage and understand and encounter and experience the grace of God at work in your life, and you go out and you live that and you experience it, then you've gotten what God has for us in this truth. Because the grace of God is not just something that I know about. The grace of God is something that I know because I have experienced the grace of God. Some of you have already shared with me this morning, before the service even started, things that are going on in your life that are a work of the grace of God in your life. You have experienced His grace this week, but I also believe and know that there are many others here this morning that need grace. You need grace for whatever situation you're going through. It may be a financial situation, it may be a struggle with sin, it may be a family situation, issue, it it may be all sorts of things, but you need grace, and there may be someone here this morning that's never trusted Christ as your Savior, and you need a work of saving grace in your life. You may feel like you're too far gone. You may feel like you've done too much. You may feel like you've sinned too far, but I want you to know that the grace of God saves to the uttermost, to the outmost limits God's grace reaches. There's no perhaps greater account in the Scriptures of what grace looks like. There are some great stories of grace. I think of Paul the Apostle. 
I think of the, the great little book of Philemon and the story of what grace lived out looks like. But I want you to look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I want you to see a story of grace. I want us to look at what grace actually is and what grace does for us. And I want you and our hearts and minds to be filled with the magnificence and the amazing grace of God so that we not only understand it, but we experience the grace that we need for this moment. In chapter 9, you have the account. I'm going to give a little bit of the backstory for this so you understand what's taking place. You remember that young David has been anointed at an early age to be king of Israel, but he is not yet king. He has to live on the run for a good while. King Saul is trying to put him to death. And as David is running, David engages and meets Saul's eldest son, Jonathan. Jonathan, by legal right, would be the next king. But God has chosen otherwise because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And he saw the heart of David, and he chose David to be the next king. You would think that Jonathan would be envious of David, but he's not. And he and David form a covenant between the two of them. And Jonathan says, when you become king, not if, but when you become king... You're going to be king in the place of my father, but when you become king, I want to ask you to promise to care for my family, care for my house. And David swears that he will. And so David, after Saul and his sons are killed in battle, Jonathan included, David has to work to become king. He's first king of a few of the tribes, and then eventually the entire nation embraces him. But it takes him some time to establish himself as as the king. Now understand that in this tradition and in this culture, when you become king, the first thing that you do is you publicly kill all the family of the previous king. You do this for two reasons. One, you kill them because you don't want to have any competition for the throne. You do it publicly to establish your authority, to let everybody know nobody messes with me. And so David becomes king, and the first thing that he says in verse 1, David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? Now, if we stopped right there, we would know exactly what he was talking about. David says, Are there any people left in the house of Saul? And his servants, as they hear this, they probably and possibly thought, I know exactly what he's getting ready to do. He's going to do what every other king has ever done. He's going to wipe them out. But notice the next phrase, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. David has taken a step of grace. David's not just saying, I'm going to take care of Jonathan's family. I'm going to meet my covenant. I'm going to keep my word. David says, I'm going to expand what I promised to Jonathan to everyone who was my enemy. Let me pause a minute and say that our God's grace expands not just to those who were on his side, but to those of us who were his enemy. You and I, when we were born into this world, we were born as enemies of God. We were at enmity with God. And yet, that's that's who God extends grace to. God doesn't extend grace to just those who are his friends. We don't become acceptable to God, and so God likes us, now gives us His grace. God, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He 
first loved us and gave His Son to be the provided sacrifice for our sins. That's grace. That grace is extended. And so there's a servant that served Saul, and he comes and he says, well, he said, there is one that is left, and his name is Mephibosheth. He, in verse 4, he says, Jonathan has yet a son which is lame on his feet. Now, a chapter or two back, you'll encounter the story of how this takes place. When Saul and his sons are killed in battle, there's panic in the, in the palace. And the servants know, so here's, here's several possibilities, and none of them are good. The Philistines, who've just won the battle, are going to come, and they're going to wipe out any opposition. Cut the head off, kill Saul and his family, wipe out his palace, wipe out everybody, and Israel will not recover. Or perhaps David and his mighty men are going to swoop in while Saul is away and while the Philistines are fighting with Saul, and they're going to come in and they're going to do the job. Whatever the case, we've got to get out of town. And so as they're doing this, young Mephibosheth, five years old, is scooped up by the royal nurse, the the one who is taking care of him, the governess that would have authority over him, and she scoops him up, and as they run, perhaps she stumbles and drops him, or perhaps he's running and he falls, but for whatever reason, there's an accident, he falls, and he is, the Bible says he is lame on his feet. He is unable to walk. And so the servants of Saul take Mephibosheth, and they carry him to a place called Lodabar that is on the far side of Jordan. They take him to as safe a place as they can find because his life is at risk. And now not only is his life at risk, he is perfectly defenseless. He has no means of escape. He has no means of getting away. He can't run for his life. There's no one. He contributes nothing to anyone. It is not of anybody's benefit to be on Mephibosheth's side. He's not going to come back and lead a revolt against David. Nobody's standing by him, but they take him to this place, and the word Lodabar means no word. This is a nothing place. Any of y'all ever been in a nothing place? You don't have to start naming them, but there's, there's places I've been, I've looked around and I've said, surely this is Lodabar. This is, this is no place. There's no word about it. It also possibly means no pasture land. It's a place where there's nothing to eat. There's nothing that goes on there. They have taken him to a place of nothingness to preserve him and to save his life. So here is a man, a young man that is unknown. Only a few even know of his existence. The king certainly doesn't know of him, but the servant knows of him. He's living in a place of emptiness and barrenness and nothingness. And he grows up to fear for his life. He's been told that the king is his enemy. He's been told that David is his enemy. He's been told that if they ever come for you, there's nowhere else to run. And if you had a place to run, you can't get there. There's no way we can get there. He's living at the mercy of someone else. He's living in the home of another individual. And he has nothing to do and nowhere to go. That's exactly where we are apart from the grace of God. We are in a nothing place. We are empty apart from the grace of God. He's been taught that if you ever see anyone coming, you just better know your life is over. You deserve justice is coming for you. If you, see, if you see someone headed this way, nobody goes to Lodibar on purpose. It's sort of like some places that I've been that are so far back that they're suspicious of outsiders because nobody gets there 
on purpose. If you get there, you're either there to take something or you're there for a nefarious reason or you're, you're, up, to some, you're up to no good. I can just imagine Mephibosheth looking out the window one day and seeing some dust on the horizon. And he knows that someone is coming across the plain to where he is. And he knows that that movement of dust, that cloud of dust, is not naturally caused. He knows what the wind looks like. He's been there for years. He knows what happens. And he sees something that's different. And fear begins to rise in his heart. Because he knows that if someone's coming, it's not good. They're moving pretty fast, so they're clearly not on foot. It's probably someone with some wealth or power or authority. And they're moving toward him, and he realizes as he gets closer that it's a chariot of the king. And the fear rises in his heart, the desperation, the lack of any hope. Let me tell you that that's where we are apart from Christ. We are without hope and without God in this world. And we are desperate and people are searching for something, but there is no hope. And they are desperate. Maybe someone's here this morning and you're desperate. You don't know what it is you're looking for. You don't know what you're desiring. And you've tried every possible thing and it brings you nothing but hopelessness and desperation and emptiness and nothingness. As the chariot pulls up, Mephibosheth knows that it means death for him, and he has no place to run. He has no one to take him if he could run. He's incapable of escaping himself. The soldier steps out of the chariot, and he says to Mephibosheth those words that he has dreaded since he was five years old. Mephibosheth, the king, has sent me, well, the word in the King James is to fetch you. Some of you have been in the country long enough, you know what the word fetch means. The king has sent me to bring you back to him. That can mean only one thing. He's not only going to kill Mephibosheth, he's going to do it in a public manner to try to demonstrate his authority. I love what David has said, though. What what Mephibosheth does not know is that he has said, I want to show kindness. When he comes to David in verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, just in case you've forgotten who we're talking about here, the writer is inspired to repeat these names because he is reminding us exactly of what David is about to do. David said to him two words, Fear not. I want you to to remember this morning that grace speaks peace. Do you remember what Jesus' first words to His disciples were? When they were huddled in that room, scared to death because their Savior has died, their Master has died, and He appears to them alive after the resurrection, and the first words out of His mouth are, Peace be unto you. Fear tells us that the situation is out of control. Fear tells us that there's nothing we can do. Fear tells us what is reality. Fear takes reality and drives it deep into our heart, but it doesn't give us the full story. It doesn't include grace. Fear says, this is the situation. This is the diagnosis. This is the prognosis. This is what's going to happen. Here's where you are, and you are without hope. You are at a nothing, empty place, and there is no hope in your life. And grace says, do not be afraid. Peace be unto you. It's what God's grace says to us. And it continues to say that to us through the rest of our lives. 
when we are in moments that are beyond our control, when there's burdens that we're carrying that we can't do anything about, when there's situations that are overwhelming, it is then that God's grace overwhelms us with the words, fear not, be of peace, be at peace. What is this grace? He says, I want to show him the kindness of the Lord. I want to show him the kindness of God. Verse 3 When he asked the question, he said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God? What is the grace, the kindness of God? The word that's in the Bible, of course, we use grace for a host of different terms and uses. And In the Bible, it simply means unmerited, undeserved favor. If we got what we deserved we would have fear in our hearts. But I'm glad that God's grace gives us not what we deserve, it gives us what we don't deserve. When we look at the story of Mephibosheth, and I won't take a long time to work through this passage this morning, there's a key phrase that's repeated four times through this. Remember remember when we're looking at narratives in the Old Testament especially, but throughout Scripture, when something is repeated, especially in a Hebrew narrative and Hebrew writing, they repeated things for emphasis. You remember, for example, when the angels stood around the throne of God, they said, holy, holy, holy. Repeating it means emphasis. Four times in these verses, and I'm not going to break each of these down, but four times there's a phrase that is used. First in verse 7, look at the last thing that he says to Mephibosheth. Thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Four times he says he'll eat bread at my table until the last time in verse 13, he says he ate bread continually at David's David's table. Can I point out something to you real quick in verse, verse 7? There are three levels to God's grace here that I hope you'll see. First of all, we would rejoice in the grace of God that keeps back, keeps us back from what we deserve. The wages of sin is what? Death. We deserve death. We deserve separation from God. Not just physical death, but complete separation from God. That's the the grace that says, don't be afraid. What you think is going to happen to you is no longer going to happen to you. The penalty of death is taken away. But there's also the grace of God that provides for our needs that meets and provides and gives us what we need. He says, I'm going to restore to you all the land of Saul thy father. You're going to get all the land. David, instead of taking the lives of his opponents and his enemies, takes all the wealth and gives it back to them. God cares and provides for our daily needs. Aren't you glad that God gives us everything that we need? He meets our needs. My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. But he goes beyond that. Don't stop understanding God's grace in that God has saved us from hell and kept us from the death that we deserve. Don't stop with God's grace with God meets my needs and God answers my prayers and gives me some things that I want. God has also adopted us into his family. We are not only recipients of his blessings, we are his sons and daughters. And that's what it means for him to sit at the king's table. 
He now gets to function and live. He is adopted into David's family. He is one of the sons. He is the child of a king. I am glad this morning that by the amazing, wonderful, matchless grace of God, I stand before you as a child of the King of kings and the God of this universe. I am a part of His family. And if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, we cry with the spirit of adoption, Abba, Father. He is our Father. That's grace. Grace is so much more than I'm not going to hell. Grace is so much more than God's given me a few things along the way, some wonderful things, but just some things along the way. Grace means that I am seated at the Father's table, and one day I will sit forever, continually, as this verse says, at the Father's table. There's so many things here. I I, I thought about overwhelmed by the grace of God. Trying to study and preach about the grace of God is overwhelming. There's no way that I can put all these words into it. Let me just summarize what grace is. Can I do that? Here's what grace is. Grace is everything that I need from God for me to move along the journey that He has laid out before me. It is how my salvation began. It is how my salvation continues. And it is how my salvation will conclude. And every day, at every moment along the way, there is grace for what I need. There is grace that brings me to salvation. There is grace that saves me. There is grace that carries me. And we'll look at some verses and see all that grace does. But it is essentially God giving us exactly what we need and God working in us for everything that we need for every moment, every step of the way. I'm amazed. I I can't even fathom that. Because what you need is going to be different than what I need. There are those of you here this morning that are going through things that I cannot understand. I can understand that you're going through them. I can understand that you're going through a burden. And sometimes when we say, hey, I understand, we're not saying we feel what you feel. We're saying we understand that you're experiencing a really trying time. So give some grace when people say that. They're not always saying, oh, I know exactly how you feel. They're saying, I know you're feeling I know you're feeling something, and I understand that, and I'm praying for you. But we don't know exactly every person goes through unique circumstances. Every person faces different temptation. Every person goes through different trials. Some Some face challenging days, and we all need the grace of God. But God's grace is uniquely tailored and suited to exactly what we need in the moment that we need it. And wherever you are in your walk this morning, from justification to glorification, wherever you are along that journey, God has suited exactly the grace that you need for this moment and for this time. And when He does that for all of His children, that's that's overwhelming to think that that's God's grace. What does God's grace do for us? Mephibosheth gets all the blessings of sonship. You know this, and I'm going to move quickly. If you want to try to jot these references down and come back to them later to reread them, to refresh them in your mind, the Bible tells me, first of all, that it is God's grace that saves me. I am saved by grace. Not of works, 
but I'm saved by grace. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith. Romans 3.24, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You and I, if we are saved, we are saved by the grace of God. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I'd like to know Christ as my Savior. I'd like to be freed from my sins, but I don't know what I can do. I don't know how to go about it. You don't do a thing except call upon the name of the Lord. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they're saved by grace. I've been saved by grace. You've been saved. Anyone that's ever entered into the family of God and anyone that ever enters into the throne of heaven, anyone that ever enters through the gates of heaven, we will only be able to say, saved by grace. God's grace saves us. And if that's all it ever did, that should be overwhelming. But God's grace also secures me. I do not save myself. I'm saved by grace. And I am kept by the grace of God. Listen to Romans 5 too. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. I don't stand in my own strength and you don't stand in your own strength and it's a good thing that we don't because it is only the grace of God that keeps us. 1 Peter 5.12, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. It's God's grace that works to sanctify me. When I'm saved, God didn't save me to sit on a chair. He didn't save me to just sit around and wait till I got to heaven. He saved me to make me like Jesus Christ for His glory. Now, how's that going to happen? Well, there's a couple of different views about this. There are some people who think, well, it's all of God. God just, we just sort of sit there passively and God just zaps us and makes us holy. Well, that's contrary to Scripture, because the Scripture says that there are things we're supposed to do, there are steps we're supposed to take. On the other hand, there's people that say, well, it's sort of me and God tag-teaming, and I do my part, and what I can't do, He does the rest. Well, if you want to get right down to it, since I can't do anything to start with, that's really like this one over here. It's God doing everything to start with. But the Bible says I have a role to play. I'm to put off the old man, I'm to put on the new man. But I can't do that apart from the grace of God. So if there is growth taking place, if there is sanctification taking place, if there is change taking place in my life, it is not me doing it. It is the grace of God at work in my life. And God gives the exact grace that is needed for that work to take place. Listen to some of these verses. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Some of y'all thought Popeye was the first one to say that. Paul the Apostle, who was also a sailor, by the way. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. The grace of God at work in me. He's the one that's making me into what I ought to be. It is the grace of God that is moving me from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. And so when you're struggling with sin, when you're struggling with temptation, you're not going to overcome it on your own strength. It is only going to be by the grace of God that that change and that transformation takes place. 
2 Peter 3.18. But grow in grace. Philippians 2.13. It is God. Now listen to this one. It is God that works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. If you have any desire at all to follow Christ, if you have any desire at all to grow in Christ, if you have any desire at all to be what God has saved you to be, you do not desire that in your own nature. It is a work of grace in your life that has even given you the power to will of His good pleasure, to want to be what God wants us to be. And then not only to will it, but to do it. We're not going to do it apart from His grace. And this is the work of grace in us. Whatever God designed for us to be and to do as Christians, He empowers us by His grace to do. Are you a mom or a dad? That's part of your task that God has given you, and you'll only be the mom or dad that God wants you to be by His grace. You will need grace to be a parent. Can I get an amen from the parents? Are you a husband, a wife? Y'all anticipating this way too good. You're going to need grace. Can I get an amen from the wives? That's the loudest female amen I've ever heard in my life. You see what I'm saying? Whatever our job is, whatever our task is, the work of God in us requires His grace. And so every single day we must come to God and say, God, I need your grace. I know that you have given this grace that's specifically suited and tailored and measured and it's exactly what I'm going to need for this day. And I don't know what this day holds and I don't know what the week ahead holds, but God, I'm coming to you for the grace that I need. I don't know what the next weeks hold for my life. I don't know what they hold for my family. I don't know what's going to take place, but I know that I need your grace. God's grace strengthens us. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things. Does that pretty much cover everything? Always having all grace to abound in all things. There is no situation in your life that God's grace is not sufficient for. The grace of God that you may abound to every good work. Why does God give us His grace? He's strengthening us to do what He wants us to do. Look, I don't know what, you, I don't know what your need is this morning. There's some who need encouragement. There's some who need strength. There's some who are perplexed about situations in your life. There's some you have no idea how it's going to turn out, and you're sitting there feeling like you're in a nothing place like Mephibosheth, and I want you to know that God's grace is on the horizon. It's on the way. He has sent it at exactly the right moment, at the right time. And Paul says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul said, because of that, I will therefore glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I don't know about you, but I want the power of God at work in my life. And I know that that will only take place when I am experiencing the overwhelming grace of God at work in me. Somebody say amen. 
please don't make me ask for my own amens. I might have to be like the old preacher I heard one time that just stepped aside and said, Amen, preacher, that's good preaching. I'll amen myself if I have to. Thankful for God's grace. John Newton was a man that knew a little bit about grace. John Newton was raised by his mother, godly mother, who taught him the scriptures, taught him to memorize scriptures. But at 11 years old, he went to sea with his sea captain father, and much of what he had learned was sort of pushed to the side. He spent most of his teen years traveling um, in the merchant marine with his father. He was impressed into the British Navy. He didn't like the strong discipline that they had, and so he deserted, and he joined with a, a slave ship. For the next years of his life, he would work in the slave trade, something he would later come to hate and look back on with just terrible grief and burden. He lived a very profligate lifestyle, a very degenerate lifestyle. He considered himself a free thinker, and he did what he wanted to do. And he not only did wrong, he also sought to bring others into it as well. But God, in His amazing grace, reached down into John Newton's life. And He spoke to him through some scriptures that he had memorized as a child. And He spoke to him through the testimony of others. And He began to work in Newton's life. And Newton eventually left the slave trade and began to serve God as a, as a pastor and he wrote hymns, and he joined with a man by the name of William Cooper that we would, if I named some of his hymns, you would know. And they joined together and wrote a, a, a group of hymns called the Olney Hymns. Many of these were ones that back then many pastors wrote hymns to go along with their sermons. You should thank God that I don't have to write a hymn to go with every sermon for us to sing in every service. I can write one in every once about 20 or 30 years, but every service would be a little much. But among those songs that he wrote was one that you know and I know. Listen to some of the things that Newton said about grace. If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there, he said. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. <laughs> some of us can relate with that. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. He understood the grace of God. In his later years, he would say this, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Most of us know his words that he wrote. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. John Newton knew about being lost. He knew about being a wretch. But now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That is the overwhelming, amazing grace of God. Who needs grace this morning and what do you need it for? I want you to know 
that we are rich according to His riches in glory. My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory. And that may be a physical need, that may be a bill paid, but it more than likely is the grace that you simply need to make it through the situation that you're in. And maybe this morning you need to come and say, God, I need grace. Our song and our prayer from here to the gate will be, I need grace. And once we pass through the gate, our song will be, only by grace. Only by grace. Thank God for His overwhelming 